The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. Listen to Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It was great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my boat. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome aboard the Big Red Bus. If you are new on the bus and you have your ticket, what is this little program about? What can you expect? Well, it really is quite simple. We just find interesting people that we think have their mojo working. They've got a point of view. And we just want to have a chat to them, find out what it is they do so we can apply it to our own world or maybe someone we know who's struggling at the moment in order to get their mojo working. This week, we are heading to Freedom Town, which is due north. And we're heading up there with the Saltwater Buddha, who's going to be on board the bus. So uh, one thing before we start, your only price to get on board the Big Red Bus is to leave us a review on iTunes. Throw us a bone, folks. Just uh, the show's got no advertisers, sadly, no sponsors. Uh, It lets us know you're out there. It keeps the fuel in the tank. And to be honest, we feed off that. So if you can, just one line, just throw us a bone. Just uh, go in there, give us a review or something. Let us know you're out there. That'd be good. The team's all aboard. Uh, The bar fridge is well stocked. I see, Rubber, you've put... (laughs) You've stocked up on Tim Tams. Uh, in fact, did you know? I know it's Kit Kat, isn't it? I'm sorry. I was going to say there's a Tim Tams shop opening, <laughs> but there is a there is a Kit Kat store opening up based on the influence of the Japanese on flavors of Kit Kats. I don't know. Are you? Are you? Could you take a lady to Kit Kat and walk away oh, from Tim Tam? Look, I don't know that I could walk away from Tim Tam, but you know, uh, I'm. Just thinking, I can barely see you through the moving boxes in here because Voodoo Sound's about to move premises. I might need a few Kit Kats because when you have a break, you need a Kit Kat, apparently. <laughs> Hello to our friends at Kit Kat. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. It's about time. Let's go. Uh, well, I took some cues from our guest this week. Our guest seems to uh, enjoy basing the titles of his books around surfing. So I figured the obvious question well, for me anyway, was who surfed the biggest wave in history and exactly how big was it? Now, it turns out that record belongs to a guy called Garrett McNamara. Garrett dropped in on a get this 100 foot wave back in 2011. That's 30 odd metres or about a third of a football field in Robo speak. Uh, 
Ever humble, Garrett said, it was really like any other wave. I had no idea I was on what would become the world record wave. I remember thinking the entire time that I wish I was deeper, but after looking at the footage, realised my jet ski partner had put me in the perfect spot. Uh, you can see his world record ride on YouTube. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. If you're a surfer, you will just not believe it. If you want to check it out, take a peek at our Facebook page and I'll also get GB to drop that in the show notes. But uh, a hundred footer, mate, I'm not sure I would be brave enough. Thankfully, uh, Garrett's a big fan of the show. So day, mate. Good, uh, good to have you on board the, uh, the Big Red Bus. I think you listened to our Eddie Wood Go episode. Eddie would go indeed. Uh, now, I've got something for mm. you. Remarkable impact of the virus. This I, I saw these stats in the New York Times, and I don't know that we I, I don't know that we totally grasp the impact of this pandemic. Do you know there's been a 96% decrease in travelers passing through the US airport security? Up uh, that was that was between in March and April. And this so 96% less travel. Imagine the impact that's having on hotels and security guys, Starbucks, coffee teams, news agencies, cleaners, caterers, taxis, Ubers. That's, and then, but the flip side of those that are suffering is the Americans watch 6.1 billion hours of Netflix in April alone. Hmm. Wow. I find it astonishing. And the U.S. box office revenues, who are really suffering right now, on March 18, so we're going back a little, back a couple of weeks, was 300 grand. That would normally be 11 million last year. Half the Americans employed before the virus are now working remotely, and there's been a 30 times growth in Zoom. It was 10 million in December, 30 million people in April, let alone what it is today. So when you dig into the stats and like in our country here, we think we're starting to get on top of things, but I tell you what, this thing's got a long, long way to play out, particularly if you're in business. Yeah, and particularly if you're in America too. But you know, the thing that I find surprising about that 96% through the airports thing for me is I actually would have gone not lower than that. I actually would have gone higher. I actually would have thought, you know, 99, 98% with the whole country being in lockdown and stuff. I find 96% remarkable. In just in the terms of maybe more than I would have thought. No, there are still some flights going. So there are still the road warriors who are out there doing stuff. Um, so they're not, the airports aren't closed, but it's pretty restricted. But it would, would be weird going there. There'd be no lineups for your Starbucks, that's for sure. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week is Jamal Yogas, who is known as the Saltwater Buddha. And that's how I first came across him because I thought it's just a cool name. This is a guy who at a young age found himself in trouble. He ran away to Hawaii to follow his lifelong dream of surfing. He ended up in a Buddhist monastery. He then surfed some of the best beaches in the world. And then he had a dream to be a writer and What's curious about Jamal is in doing so, he learned more about himself than he did just the topic he was writing about. And that all became his first book, which is a best-selling book. His kind of a memoir called The Saltwater Buddha. <laughs> the Saltwater Buddha, which has been adapted into a beautiful film. And I'll put that in the show notes for everybody to go to. You can find it on YouTube easy enough. He was our guest on episode 145 and 
his writing, he's been very successful. I mean, his writing's appeared in ESPN magazine, Washington Post. He's done stuff with Oprah. And Jamal's a guy who's probably seeking, searching for peace in an out-of-control, distracted, overly busy world. And he takes lessons from his time in the monasteries, like his lessons from Zen, and applies them to our busy corporate and personal lives to help us, I guess, better handle all the chaos that normally surrounds us. Jamal's about to launch his first children's book, which actually goes out this week. It's called Mop Rides the Waves of Life. It's small. It's kind of cool. It's just a great thing to sit with a kid and and read. Lovely lessons in that. Uh, And he's agreed to bring his surfboard to the studio to take us through that book and lots more. Jamal, welcome back, mate. Thank you. Appreciate it. We can't have sucked too bad if you're going to come back on the show, mate. Give us your time. (laughs) Maybe he's just being generous. Um, no, I'm just, um, I loved, loved being on the last time. So just looking for an excuse to get back on. Well, it sounds like you got a pretty good one. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. There was a time, time through your life where you described yourself as a bohemian. Then we know you as an author. We know you as a Buddhist. You were a monk for a period. We know you're a surfer. And then going back through your books, we know you've been a runaway. As you sit there today how do you see your identity? You know, uh, it feels like a different dimension being a dad. I mean, you just, you sort of, I think the first, I have three kids, um, four, six, and eight. And the first couple of years felt like everything I knew about my identity was dying and I was dying. (laughs) And it was this weird uh, experience of like, this new kind of joy and love being with your kid and um, Kai, I re- and I really did genuinely feel that. And I felt this simultaneously, like I, I was digging my own grave every day and I had no identity. And, um, and then you sort of slowly, you know, child uh, parenting is just profound in a, in the spiritual sense, because you really, your life does become about prioritizing other people ahead of yourself. And no matter what, I think no matter what kind of regimen I was putting myself in to try to do that (laughs) meditation or yoga or being on, you know, reading books about, um, getting around, you know, lessening the ego and, and feeling more compassion for all. There's no, you know, really, I think I was still able to just live a selfish life, (laughs) do whatever I want with my time. And then all of a sudden, you know, you don't have that choice and you have to really look at like, what does it mean to, to really put these guys, um, as the priority. And, um, there's a bumpy road, but I feel like now that I'm here, you know, and our oldest is eight, um, there's more like surrender and flow to it where it's about being present with them and um, and trying to balance that with, you know, getting some work done. Um, but our lives are just really chaotic. And so every day it's about getting in that mindset of like, this is going to be a challenge to get everything done. And well, um, 
so I can either look at it as like, this sucks, or this is a great way to expand my comfort zone yet again today in this 18 year marathon. So, uh, so that's a long winded way of saying, I don't even know what my identity is. I just tried it. And I think that is a daily question. I just trying to keep my head above water and, um, and still do the things I love and share them with them. It's funny though, isn't it? Because through your journey, you've always, you, you, well, in, I guess in, in reflection of your journey, you've always been able to label that part of your identity from your education, growing up, running away. Like there's always been this tag you've been able to put onto it. And then today to say you're still kind of trying to work that out. When you look at those times, Jamal, you are a guy who thinks a lot about stuff and you ponder and you meditate on things. What have you learned? What have you learned about identity from that period of knowing and being able to label it in retrospect to today not really being sure? I think dad's an absolutely critical part of that. And then the other stuff you do. What have you learned about identity in your journey on reflection? You know, when you take, when you get into, Buddhism deeply and you're in the monastery, you're really daily looking into that. How, how does the identity form every day and how does it form in a single thought? And you have the time meditating to really watch the subtle nuances of that. And, and yet you're, you've also taken on this new identity as like a monk who is separate from those crazy people out there who are like not taking the time to reflect <laughs> and get enlightened. <laughs> so you, so you kind of have this chip on your shoulder too. And yet you're aware of that. You have this meta analysis of like, I'm aware that I have ego about this, that I've, I'm one of the wise ones who's gotten off of the wheel of samsara, <laughs> and, I'm, and, and you're criticizing yourself for that and, or analyzing it. But there's no question that the whole, model of like religion and shaving your head and wearing a robe and being part of this community it gives you this new identity that um and the catch with buddhism is that it's an identity that is explicitly for questioning identity and so it's like you you're using this raft to cross the shore of suffering, which is too much attachment <laughs> to ego. And once, as the Buddha said, once you get to that shore, it would be silly to carry the raft around on your head. You have to put it down. And, um, you know, when I left the monastery, I, I definitely was searching for what, what, what is my new identity. Um, and surf bomb became the thing that I wanted to do. And it, it's like, once you pick up that surfboard, that becomes your identity. And I merged that into being a writer and um, who writes about, who wrote about my own journey. And I mean, the truth is, um, at every one of those stages, um, it's felt just like being in the monastery where it's like, I feel... Um, all this attachment when one of my books comes out to it doing well 
And that creates all kinds of struggle and suffering inside myself. And I want to be loved and I want to be accepted with each one. And yet, with I'm also observing that struggle and how that brings up a lot of um, discomfort in myself, just like when I was in the monastery. And with each book, I feel like I'm, I'm able to let go a little bit. Um, but at the same time, you build confidence with each one, too. And you say, well, you know, people, <laughs> people didn't, um, you know, say, go home, never try this again after I did my first book. And so, you, <laughs> so you, you build confidence. And I think that's just the paradox of living. You know, it's like we're all it's important to build up confidence in what you do. And it's just to be a human in society and to feel like I can stand up for myself and go into a room and sell an idea to my editor and work and do those things. And yet the other side of it is you can see how like when you become too rigidly identified with, I am Jamal Yogis, the author, um, and all your happiness is attached to that, you suffer. And so I, f I feel as though like I'm in the same boat I was. <laughs> I was always, I'm just, I'm trying to analyze, um, I'm trying to be self-aware of how um, my identity is always shifting and how I'm still in need at 40 for an identity and, and for feedback from the community. We're social animals. And yet um, I hope that I'm developing a little more flexibility and flow. Like right now I'm coming out of doing just my new book is a fantasy novel that has nothing to do with surfing. And I know it's going to be a, there's a bunch of cognitive dissonance there of like, but am I, who am I now if I'm doing these other kinds of books or who am I now, now that I'm doing children's books? And, um, but you know, I, I really feel like life is about really opening up to your passions and finding purpose. And sometimes that purpose doesn't fit a box or doesn't, none of us fit into a box. It's like our social media accounts want to put us in like, you are this, you know, you're Gary, you're on, you, you do interviews on the radio and, and they have to be in th these sorts. But, you know, obviously you're a much more nuanced person than just your public persona. And so I think, um, you've gotten me to a stage now <laughs> thinking about it out loud where I'm, I'm really exploring being flexible, trying to have a flexible identity and allow for all the things that I want to pursue creatively and as a parent um, to come through and not be shy about sharing uh, those different parts of myself, um, knowing that it'll, it may be a little, feel a little scary or weird. Um, because I'm not just, you know, a Buddhist surfer and that's all I live, <laughs> eat, sleep and breathe, you know. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. I'm going to try and put a few things together here. I'm, I'm going to try and produce our own Mojo Radio Show raft here to take us between a couple of places. But um, I'll put a link in the show notes to your – on YouTube I watched your documentary, which is absolutely beautiful. It is just – 
And in fact, Robbo needs to have a look at it. The editing is amazing. The way your music blends with your story, with the visuals, Jamal, it really is something. And no wonder it's done so well, you know, at, at the at the film festivals. The there's a piece, there's a piece in there I want to tie back to. I want to build the raft and talk about that word paradox. You said you were surfing the Santa Cruz break, and I think you described it as being very territorial. And this is a place where guys are very tribal and some guys start screaming obscenities at you. And you said you were almost going to yell back when you remembered a story of the samurai who asked the Zen master, please teach me the difference between heaven and hell. And when I heard you talk about the word paradox and building a raft, it made me think about, well, the ultimate is heaven and hell. Can you just run that story for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the samurai story um, is one of these classic tales that gets retold and over many generations. And uh, basically, this uh, the samurai comes to a monk and he says, "You know, teach me the difference between heaven and hell." And the the monk looks at him, and this was a time when samurai were very revered and respected and um and he says why would i i teach this uncouth cretin like you such a high teaching you know you're not worthy of that and the samurai raises sword and is you know he has <clears throat> all the signs of anger you know bulging veins and whatnot and he's about to slice the monk and the monk stops him and says wait that's hell and the samurai realizes how profound the teaching is and he, he, he bows down in gratitude and the monk says, that is heaven. And a really beautiful uh, story. And out in the lineup, um, you know, when I was caught in, what do I do? Do I respond? Um, and I was feeling a bunch of anger myself and anger and insecurity and all these other things. And, uh, and realized, you know, when you're carrying those things, you, you're the one suffering. And I still have to have this lesson every day with my kids. Like when I'm, sometimes they'll remind me, like, even when I'm right, like, don't hit your brother, you know, and I find myself getting really wound up and angry <laughs> and red-faced about it. Sometimes my four-year-old will look at me and I'll say, Dad, why are you so angry? And um, and it's easy to say, well, I'm angry because you're <laughs> acting like a little, you know, like you're not supposed to be doing this. How many times have we talked about this? And, but I realize when I'm doing that, I'm, I'm taking a toll on my health for one, but I'm also, they're looking at me and saying, they're not seeing we're the bad ones. They're all of a sudden seeing themselves as the victims <laughs> of the angry dad um, rather than hearing the lesson of like, why don't we hit? You know, do you appreciate it when you get hit? And while I stay calm and I, I feel like, you know, I have to learn this lesson every single day. But if I stay calm and I'm a bit more patient and we have the conversation, the lesson gets through. They respect me. I'm. I haven't had this conniption. Um, so it's it's just one of those teachings that is so profound and um, um, 
I still um, come back to all the time. So you ran away, went to Maui, learned to surf, and one day your girlfriend at the time said, actually, you're getting pretty good. You should go on a competition. And so your ego started to grow and you started to say, actually, I'm pretty good. So sometime later, you're out the back. You're looking at picking up a wave. Some grommets cut in on you and you let fly. <laughs> you, you yell at them and you catch yourself. And I guess my question, just based on what you're doing with the kids, is how do we... How do we stay the path? Because when I, when I saw it in the documentary, you talked about it, it reminded me of the Matrix and Morpheus saying to Neo, there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. And I find this, Jamala, a lot with podcasts. I find it with books and blogs and videos. And there's a lot of stuff we know, but we don't actually walk the path. We know the path. We just don't walk the path, whether it be food or thinking, mindset, resilience, courtesy, smiling. What have you learned about the difference between knowing the path and walking the path and actually trying to stay in the walking part and not just sitting in the knowing part? You're never going to walk the path perfectly. (laughs) And that, you know, there's that model of self-improvement or spirituality where there's an end goal and once you hit it you're sort of perfect and then you you know you never make another mistake but i I think that's a myth i think it i think we're always on a ever evolving um path of of growth and expansion and learning and there's always um I don't think Buddhahood is a is a finished product. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're always going, we're always making mistakes, and we become uh, we become what we judge, and we, <laughs> uh, and that's just the human experience. And I think we need that. You need to fall down and make a mistake, and and you know, and get angry once in a while, and see why. It didn't work. Um, and hopefully you just do it in a way where um, <clears throat> when you become, uh, when, you, when you do know the path, the, the falling down moments aren't, um, you know, you hope that they're not disastrous to others. <laughs> or like, but sometimes uh, I think we just have to be compassionate with ourselves and realize that um, the path is really about falling off of it and getting back on and trying again. And, and, uh, and you overcorrect and you undercorrect and, um, there's no, but there's no perfect. It's just, it's a, it's really about setting your compass. I have this little saying, I say, you know, set your compass to compassion and you always end up on the best Island, but which sounds nice, but when you set your compass to compassion, it doesn't mean that then you're perfect just because that's where your compass is set. You're going to run into icebergs and rocks and there's going to be storms. And, and as you do that, if, if your mindset is, well, this is about learning and growth and those mistakes are the way you, um, the way you get a 
way you improve a little bit so that when somebody else is making, you know, maybe your child is making the same mistakes you made, you can, you can help them out. But, um, but yeah, there's no, um, there's no perfect, you know, and I don't know. I don't know what else to say other than that, other than, you know, I think a lot of us um, want to give, you know, think a lot of things are trendy now. So it's easy to be, especially when you're in the business of helping other people learn to meditate or <laughs> writing books about it. It's easy to become a preacher and not do the work too. And, um, <laughs> and I say like with, I often say with mindfulness practice, it's like the, um, you know, talking about mindfulness practice doesn't really help you at all. You have to actually do it. <laughs> and um, so that's that's the walking the, the path part. It's fun. A lot of some people love to talk about surfing and get lots of boards and things, but not really go out much. <laughs> you just don't you don't get any better that way. There's no doubt particularly in your early part of your journey, you're a guy who was seeking, well, freedom was important to you, you were seeking freedom. And during the documentary and some of the interviews I've heard, you say that, you know, people, a lot of people have a desire to find freedom. And we normally, in my mind, associate that with freedom to work when you want, the job you want, do what you want to do, how do you want to do it? We speak of freedom in terms of things we could do. But then I heard you talk about freedom of the mind, which I thought was really interesting is that I, I think a lot of people struggle with having freedom in their mind. How do we do that, Jamal? How do we find that freedom in our own mind, in our own thoughts? What have you learned about that? We want to find freedom in circumstances and set it up just right, where it's like you've got the, you've got the perfect house, <laughs> the perfect little beach and the way, you know, where you have the waves to yourself and um, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with pursuing that. And there is, if you get there, there isn't, um, there are lots of practical um, ways that circumstances can help you feel more free. No doubt. I mean, if you're working, hundred hour weeks and you're getting paid less than minimum wage or something, it is diffi more difficult for you. So there's, I don't want to discount that circumstances are important, but I think as a society, we, we, um, we put kind of all our eggs in that basket of seeking out freedom in the circumstantial. So it's like about having that convertible and the board and the house and the, um, you know, and the right partner. But, all that stuff is constantly changing and it's bound to go bad at some point. It's like the best laid plans fall apart. Um, you know, wealthy people are often unsatisfied with their wealth <laughs> and they you know, it's like everything, everything has a, uh, every yin has a yang in, in the circumstantial world, but inside your mind, um, <clears throat> it's a bit different in that, you know, if you really take the time every day to do these basic practices of watching your breath and letting your mind 
find some space between the pounding waves of thought. There really is this sort of unfettered kind of bliss that is, you know, sages throughout the ages have talked about it as like your natural birthright. And it is this, um, or uh, Chan masters call it this wish-fulfilling gem, that it's like it's always been yours, and it's the most obvious thing when you, when you even get a glimmer of it. Like, why have I been such an idiot not seeing that <laughs> I have joy inside me? And even now saying that, I feel like a fake saying it because um, I'm so busy with uh, being a dad and work and whatnot that I don't get enough time always to tap into that. But at times when I've really dedicated, um, time to, um, to doing the practices of finding internal peace, um, it's really real, um, that you can, uh, um, tap into your original sort of birthright of, of, of this natural state of bliss that is in your mind, in your heart, whatever you want to call it. And, um, but it takes practice. It takes work <laughs> like anything else. And there is for sure like this, you can, you don't have to do it by any one school. Like it doesn't mean you have to cross your legs and sit there in Lotus for 10 hours. Or it doesn't, there are all kinds of, artists stumble on this surfers and people out in, in nature, many things that give us awe, poetry. And, um, but I do think there's something special about the stability that you can find in, um, in meditation and sort of the, the mastery of mind that you can find with a, uh, a structured practice. Um, I think that's really important um, because if you don't have that stability, you're sort of still, even if you're finding these ecstatic moments in like wine and sex and poetry and um, who doesn't love all that stuff, <laughs> um, you can, you can, those are all windows, doorways to the same kind of joy. But this, this quiet kind of practice that um, I think, these yogis throughout the ages developed, I think is a, it's like a stable way of, of having it available, um, that I've been sort of talked into, um, as a, and felt myself is, is really powerful. I think a couple of seasons ago, we had a guy on the show called Akshay Nenavate, who wrote Fiavana, and he told us the story of the Buddha and the second arrow. And I've heard you talk about the second arrow, and I've got a couple of things just to ask you about if you can fill us in on your take on the second arrow. And it seems like that second arrow is that gap between the pounding waves of thought you were talking about. So it seems like there's something in that, if you could elaborate on it. And then in the same vein, how have you used that with your writing? Because I suspect there are times, and I know there are times when you've kind of lost a vibe on your writing and gone through that whole thing about comparison and concern and worries and stuff. 
Give us your take on the second arrow. Is is that in your mind that gap in between the pounding waves, and how have you applied that to your own, say, writing? Yeah, um, yeah, I love that story of the second arrow. Where basically, um, you know, the Buddha is talking to all the monks um, and his as lay students too, and he's saying, "All right, you guys, you've been doing this mindfulness stuff and everything else." Um, and you might notice you still have some pain in your life and you still have dissatisfaction. Um, so what's the difference between people who, who practice meditation and this path and, and the ordinary person? And um, he says, well, you know, the, the ordinary person who's not mindful gets shot with an arrow and feels the pain of the arrow. And, <clears throat> and, uh, and then beats his breasts and laments and, you know, freaks out about it and complains, you know, who shot that arrow and why am I always hit with arrows? You know, it sent, it triggers, it triggers you into those many stories of like, um, why does life suck? And all of that, the Buddha says is the second arrow. You're basically jabbing yourself with the second arrow when you go on and on into these, um, stories. Um, so the mindful one still feels pain, but it's just one arrow. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, that's the story of our days. I think is like, as I was saying before with my kids, I'm getting shot with arrows all day where they say, you know, if I just take the iPad away from them, they can start <laughs> writhing on the floor and I can say, okay, this is a bummer. I don't want to deal with this tantrum, <clears throat> but, here it is. I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait till it passes and say, you know, Eben, I told you that iPad time is up and, or I can, you know, start shouting at him and then go into a big, like poor me session about like why my life is so hard right now. and <laughs> Why I can't get any work done, whatever, whatever the story is that day or like, um, and that's just a bunch of, two, three, four, I might get into 10 arrows. Um, and, uh, so, but the window, the, the, the point is, um, our fears, our, our emotional systems are faster than we are. So by the time you've noticed you're afraid or angry, you're already afraid or angry. <laughs> so you can't beat yourself, um, consciously. You have to train to find that gap. So um, that's why, too, you have to forgive yourself when you notice you've shot 10 more arrows. You know, it's like, okay, it's fine. My emotional system is faster than I am. So I've, I've done it. <clears throat> um, and then you sort of de-escalate from there. Like, okay, I can go and take some breaths now and then try this, try to restart. But the gap between the waves that you're talking about is if you really are getting good at this, where you're like able to watch how you react in every situation um, and you're becoming kind of a ninja surfer of your mental waves, yeah, you can, A, find that space of like here, noticing I'm about to react and I'm not going to. I'm going to take a breath. Um, and just realize this is uncomfortable, that discomfort is, and that's okay. 
and then decide, and then you're sort of in the position of like, well, now if I can fix the problem from a calm, in a calm way, let me do that. If I can't fix it, then I'm just going to let go and move on. Um, you know, like the Dalai Lama says, if you have, if, if you have a problem and you can fix it, don't worry about it. If you have a problem and you can't fix it, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's like the worry is the second arrow. It's like, if you, if you can fix it, then go and do the thing to fix it. If you can't, then the worry doesn't help you at all. It's just going to happen. So, um, uh, you know, how I use that in writing, I guess, um, is that it's really like anything writing is hard like most jobs are and so you know i can if i have a deadline or something and i'm i'm procrastinating and i'm thinking about how bad it's going to be when i have to go sit in front of my computer and i'm already tired um that just adds a bunch of suffering but if i just pick the freaking thing up and start typing i'm okay <laughs> um you know and same goes for like once the the um the book is coming out or something it's like you have all these expectations and hopes for it and um and they're never met it's like you never become uh, you know i haven't yet become the you know beaten Stephen King or something and selling books. So, <laughs> you know, you're not going to, um, you're going to be disappointed on some level. And I guess seeing that is like, well, that's okay. You know, you I'll be disappointed. Um, and I'll just, when I feel that I won't turn it into a big story about like how I've failed or how it's just like, well, that just is the mind sets itself up to want more. And when that comes, that's an arrow and you just greet it and bow to it and say, all right, moving on now. Dude, a ninja surfer of your mental waves. That'll be on a t-shirt by Friday. That's cool. That is gold. <laughs> a ninja surfer of your mental waves. That is going on the studio wall. That's gold. <laughs> all right. Send me, the, send me the photo when you have it up. If I, if I take you back. Because there are people who hear this, like all of us, we hear this and we hear about mindfulness and we hear about Zen and Buddhism, but it's kind of, if we go right back to the start of the show, they can't see that in their identity and we fear it, we can't see it, we don't embrace it. Yet, what I'm really fascinated by is when you're a kid growing up, your dad was in the military, which is how you ended up going to Hawaii when he got deployed there. And you were born into yoga. So you got this dad's in the military in a spiritual family you have surrounded by yoga. How did, how did your dad navigate that dichotomy? Like, did you think that's, it was, it seems quite odd to have all those things wrapped up while he's on deployment so much so that your son can observe all that and that it can influence his upbringing. How did your dad navigate or surf that dichotomy? Uh, yeah. He's a phenomenal person when I think, I was just thinking about him. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. Um, it, it, in his ability to really be himself. Um, but uh, let me break this up into a few sections. One, I think, when you when you are a military brat or in the military, I think you realize how many people don't fit the mold of military person who like the stereotype. 
And um, so I really, I always bristle against, um, you know, I'm a pretty progressive guy politically and like I'm all for, for example, we're having these huge George Floyd protests, which I'm uh, against police brutality. And, and sometimes that gets turned into all cops are like, are brutal racist, you know? And I'm, that always rubs me the wrong way. Cause I'm like, do you know, like how many of these people actually know cops or live, have lived in a, or, or no, or like <clears throat> no military people. And a lot of my dad's friends in the military were immigrants or black or gay. Um, a lot of his, uh, in fact, most of his good friends in, um, didn't fit like this tough guy, Republican kind of um, image and uh and so just uh, so i think in some ways it wasn't as hard for for him to be a little bit different than than you'd expect um and uh and then but also i think he uh he was just one of those guys who um you know, he, we come from a long line of soldiers. Like his grandfather had uh, had fought in in wars in Europe, and then my grandfather was in World War Two, and um, and then. But he also grew up kind of a bohemian. You know, he was he was raised Catholic, but was a greaser. He went to jazz shows. He surfed, um, and a lot of people who end up in the military have that kind of, you know diverse background and they're adventure seekers and they end up, you know, saying, Hey, I don't know what else I'm going to do. <laughs> so go, this looks like fun getting on a submarine. And, um, and so, uh, but, uh, having said that, um, I think it was difficult for him at times and he felt torn in different directions. And when he was sending like, you know, people underneath him to desert storm and he didn't really believe in the war. He felt deeply conflicted. And I remember what, I think that was one of the reasons he, he wrestled with drinking and all the stress of that. Um, so, uh, but what that passed on to his kids, I think is that, um, you don't, you don't, I really strive not to put myself in any one box of, of, uh, identity and not just, you know, even though I, I mostly identify with progressive politics, sometimes I disagree. And I, I, I try to be one of those people who's like a critical thinker who doesn't say, Hey, we always have to toe the tribal party line here. Like every person has such a unique imprint. And what makes humanity beautiful is our ability to, when we really live that, um, and, um, and debate and, you know, and differ. And so I think, um, I, I bristle against this social media culture where it feels like sometimes whether, no matter who you are, if you step outside of that, (laughs) um, image that people think you are in public like there's almost like a a tendency for the tribe to kind of beat you down and put you back in line and um 
I think we really have to watch that as humans right now because there's this sort of um, we're all living this outward online persona um, and that can be good and have value but it also uh, we can fall into these um, more easily I think fall into these real tribal uh, limiting ways of being. I've got a couple of things to thread together here, Jamal. You talked about the day your dad came home and said, I'm leaving. And I suspect that when you think back at that, that's a very traumatic, emotional moment when your dad, who you think is a fabulous guy, goes, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm gone. And then I heard you talk about the fact that a negative thought about yourself attaches to other past negative thoughts about yourself. And your term was it connects the same negative real estate in your brain and it compounds. Did that, how long did that compound for you? Your dad leaves, there's an emotional moment there and all sorts of stories go through your mind as a kid. How long did that compound for you? And at what point were you able to break that, disrupt that pathway to create a different story, which helps you deal with it, learn from it, and take something for the future? I mean, I didn't know, I wasn't aware at all that, that those synapses had tied together, sort of um, the anger at my dad from that moment, the story that ran from it, that I started running through it, which is kind of that relationships are doomed or, um, and, uh, and also, um, the, the, just the, the fear and anger that I had, um, toward becoming a father as well. Um, it, it, it's, it was a, it was a slow unwinding to that because I had to go through like so many kids, just the sort of rebellion and feel of just living through my emotions and trying to make sense of them. And that was part of running away. Um, and then, uh, but when I did run away, it was my dad who came to get me and we ended up having this time in Hawaii where we, we felt a re- a reconnection through the water. And it's only in retrospect, having learned a lot about neuroscience since you're framing it in terms of pathways, you know, really in writing the fear project, how I learned how memories do have real estate. And each time you do remember a traumatic experience, you're actually tapping that original real estate, but you're altering it. You're altering it and compounding it with, with, the state of mind that you're in as you remember it. So I think when he and I were out in the waves when I was 16 and he came to get me, um, I was, you know, we were re re, that was positive exposure that I hadn't had with him in years, positive exposure to, um, each other. And that visceral exposure (laughs) that the ocean or something just, like playful can provide was healing, but I didn't really know, you know, any of that was happening. It was only later at writing it and writing was another way that that healing happened. 
I remember writing Saltwater Buddha and crying through those first chapters, you know, um, and and that being a healing, and then seeing his reaction to the book of feeling sad about it, about and regretting some of the things that happened, but ultimately being really proud of me, um, and and that being part of the healing, and then <laughs> and then it was really when I you know met my current wife my my amy um the only woman i've been married to current wife makes it sound like i've married a bunch of women um (laughs) (laughs) and plan to marry many more um but uh but anyway when i met amy and was terrified to propose but was thinking about it and um it was interesting I was at the same time I was, I was researching all this neuroscience and I was pushing myself to surf bigger waves because I was writing the fear project and was trying to get out there. And it was really getting over this fear of surfing Mavericks, which I never really got over, but I was able to do it successfully. And that was like a nuclear bomb that went off in my consciousness when I went down the face of that first Mavericks wave where it was like, Something from my childhood, my all my fear about that wave broke, and it was like, oh, you can break these fears. These things are, and there was that real experience. Literally, when I came in from that wave, I said, "I'm gonna, I can do it. I can propose to Amy. I can get through this." Because um, at that point, I was conscious that I had this real fear of commitment, and. Um, and it was, uh, it was palpable. So it was, anyway, that's just to say it's been a process. It's, it's a process I'm still in, no doubt. But, um, but I do feel this, um, after many years of feeling like my relationship with my dad was troubled, I now really look back on our relationship with fondness and with love and don't feel, I don't feel that trauma that I felt as he was walking out the door, I have more understanding of where he was at and really um, admire in many ways how he lived. It leads me on to something I heard you talk to Dan Harris about on his podcast, which is, a, it's a really, really good show. And that was a, it was a terrific interview. Um, Dan's a big fan of our show. Hi, Dan. Oh, we call him Harrow, the Harris, the Harrowinator. Uh, you, you told this beautiful story about a man you met, and there's actually a journey behind it. And he said to you, very sad, no problem. Where where did that story originate and why does that statement mean so much to you? Yeah, that was a a monk that I became good friends with in the Himalayas named Sonam. Um, So uh, the, the the elevator version is is I I'd been together with a woman for a few years and same deal I'd had a bunch of um, commitment fears and then I'd finally come around and was ready to commit and then when I got there she said I'm out of there and she'd done that at a time when we were supposed to go to India together and she was uh, Indian American and so I ended up going anyway and was just a wreck just utter wreck like I. Never felt more heartbroken in my life and never felt like my life was just never going to amount to anything. 
but I made it up to the Himalayas and um, was trying to do both some journalism to get ready for graduate school and also some meditation. And I ran into Sodom. And gradually I learned that he was um, really grieving the loss of his family because he had come over the Himalayas at age 11 to ordain with the Dalai Lama, hoping that he would then be able to uh, still keep in touch with his family. But with as the political situation with China ramped up, he was never able to get back and he, he didn't have any, uh, had lost touch with them for 15 years and didn't know if they were all right. So he was very sad about this, but he was simultaneously the most joyful person I'd ever met. He just, every, every minute <laughs> he just exuded and beamed. And, um, and yet sometimes he would cry as he talked about his family and, um, and I really felt like I was grieving and yet I was just depressed and pissed off and angry. And I, I wanted to know, um, you know, how Sonom sort of held these together. Um, and I think I was at a point in my practice where I really wasn't, I was using meditation as a way to sort of push emotion away. I was, had this sort of Zen warrior approach where I was like, it's about, getting tough or like eliminating the emotion. Um, and so I was doing a lot of meditation, but I don't think I was really contacting any of the real emotion. I was just wanting it to go away. And, um, so one day Sonam and I were hiking in the Hills above this town, McLeod Ganj, and, and he was looking at the snow and he got emotional thinking about the snow in Tibet. And I said, and I saw that he was getting teary, and I said, "I'm I'm just so sorry that I can't help. We can't find them, Sonam." And he started laughing, and he goes, "Jama, you funny. This very sad, no problem." And uh, and we laughed about it, and but I, it was such a profound uh, statement, and one that I just realized that I wasn't incorporating into my life at all because my very sad was a huge problem. <laughs> it was my main problem. I just wanted it to stop. And, um, but it was after that, that I ended up going on a retreat and it was the first retreat ever that I ended up just bawling through the whole thing. Um, it was like day three, just something cracked. And I realized, um, that I just, I couldn't stop crying and I didn't. And it, again, it wasn't like this conscious thing, like Sonam told me that, and now I'm going to go on retreat and cry. It just sort of, those things happened together. But all the while I had that sort of mantra in my, in my head, this very sad, no problem. It was really helpful. And, and maybe he just gave me permission as this guy who was this very high monk who to still have emotion. Like you don't have to, being peaceful doesn't mean you don't, you're not human, you know? And, um, so that was so helpful. It's still, uh, still really helpful to me. We've got a, a guest coming up on the show called Beth Kempton, who wrote 
a, a beautiful book called Wabi Sabi, and it's a Japanese term that the Japanese have a hard time actually explaining. They know what it is, but it's, they have a hard time explaining what it is. And in her book, Wabi Sabi, Beth talked about washing dishes without doing anything else, being intensely in that moment, noticing the water on your hands, the feeling of the soap, the sound of the water flowing. And it, it actually is a, it's a beautiful book that I poured over. And it made me think about you when I read that passage, Jamal, knowing that we we're going to talk today. Do you have a practice like that that brings you back to that that gap between the pounding of the waves? Do you have that that ritual? Do you have that process where you go back to something to center yourself with the senses to experience that what the Japanese called wabi sabi? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, I feel lucky to have lots of them. <laughs> um, I mean, certainly. Surfing is one, um, but that feels like too easy because it's it's one of those things that you sort of separate from the rest of life where it's like, now I get to relax and go surfing. But um, I think cooking has always been one of those things for me where um, I'm able to uh, really just sort of chop the onions and um, and have a experience this real feeling really connected to sort of the grounded aspect of, of being alive, like, um, full sensory experience. And it helps that food's just good and you're smelling everything. And, um, I, but I definitely have moments, uh, with food where just that full process of whether you're growing it, cooking it, eating it, <laughs> it's such a, um, I think it food in and of itself is like a mindfulness. Um, it's the full package, you know, it's a, it, cause it connects us to, um, to the cycle life and death. And if you really want to immerse in, you know, I guess the joy of, 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 of the cycle of life seems like cooking is and and eating (laughs) are it. And, um, uh, here on quarantine, during quarantine, um, we've been getting back to that because we can't go out to eat as much. And, um, it's been really lovely to every night, um, you know, my wife and I have been just going through the cookbooks and cooking with our kids. And it's something uh, that amazingly, like, kids really, um, I don't know if it's the met, they just, they click in to a different mode around food. Our kids do. We have three wild boys. They cannot focus together on one project um, calmly, usually at all. Um, but if we do like a, if we do a cooking project, sometimes the whole family will be in there, you know, um, in a really beautiful present way. And I, and sure half the time something breaks and one of the brothers bites each other, the other or something, but it, it's still, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed 
I'm amazed how many times like our most mindful moments, present moments um, together are often, um, yeah, measuring flour and beating eggs. There seems to be a, a poem or a, a piece from a poet, Rumi, that seems to be at the core of your being and a lot of your writing. And the poet Rumi wrote, we are not a drop in the ocean. We are an ocean in a drop. Why Why that statement? What's that mean to you? Why does it resonate so much with Jamal? Well, I mean, there's the, there's the amazing kind of uh, quantum aspect of it where you just, the physics aspect where we're always trying to make sense of this um, idea that there is no inherent self as we know it. Like here we are, you know, I have a, a, a physical body and an identity <laughs> around that body and around the memories and thoughts that I have. And yet every day, whatever it is that I think I am is exchanging out with the natural world, right? Like I eat a carrot and then some of that carrot becomes me and, and, and some of it moves back into nature. And then also we learn that our, our atoms are constantly being switched out. Um, so what is it, you know, there's very little actual matter. It's not like Jamal comes out as this little ball and that ball of matter just expands and then dies. And, (laughs) and that, matter is the same the matter has completely been switched out lots of times over by the time jamal is is uh you know returns to the earth or my body returns to the earth so what was it that made me that's the mystery right it was it was this set of of um set of memories for sure and a set of um actions but also um and perhaps like a, uh, a, a mind stream or soul as the Buddha, <laughs> Buddhists like to put it in terms of, um, uh, but, but it's clear not getting into the spiritual realm, just on a physical realm, uh, physical level that, um, we really are in this continuous flow with, all of reality much like a wave has a distinct look and you can follow that wave across the sea and then it breaks on the ocean and you could look at that wave's life and say well that was a distinct wave but all the while the wave was just the ocean it was um energy moving through the medium of ocean and it looks like it has all these distinct qualities and you can name it but actually it always was the entire ocean and um and that seems to be the way that just reality is. Like everything is a wave. And actually, if you get down to the quantum level, everything is moving as a particle or wave. And it's largely empty space <laughs> that, we, that we don't even understand at this point. So I think it's a very satisfying quote on, this, on an intellectual level of what we understand of the paradox of being. Um, and Rumi seemed to know that, and and uh, and lots of of uh, mystics have seemed to sense that we are at once um, 
the drop and the ocean. And, um, and that every drop contains sort of the, the, the potential of, of the, of the whole. Um, it contains the same basic essence and, um, and of course you can take that into real weird quantum levels where it's like, Oh, well, yeah, maybe there are universes inside each atom. And, <laughs> and I mean, that gets into just mind boggling stuff that is beyond my realm, but I've always found it as somebody who's kind of likes to dabble in the quantum realm. It's really satisfying, um, way of summing that up poetically and then it but it's also it's really what the way Rumi was looking at it was like I think more of a of like a koan that was getting you to experience yourself as and question the identity um and that's like more like the zen level of like trying to break us out of our entrenched patterns and experience have that satori moment where you're like ah <laughs> there's more here there's more um i don't have to be so locked in to my own story of suffering do you know i could talk to you for hours jamal i find your stuff so thought-provoking it just, it just encourages you to stop ponder think readdress uh i'm very conscious of your time uh, and and uh, you've got a new book coming out uh, which is a kid's book. It's your first kid's book, right? And it's coming out at the end of June. Tell us about MOP. Yeah, MOP is really, I realized that I, what I was trying to say in a lot of words in my grown-up books, I could probably distill into a handful. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, actually MOP came to be just because one of the other things I like, wabi-sabi things I like to do is doodle. I just like to draw little like stick figures and waves and things. And I started drawing this one character had big curly hair, like I had as a kid. And, um, I just really liked drawing him. And then he just took on a character and life of his own. And before I knew it, I had this story about this kid mop who's his nickname mop. Cause of his hair looks like a mop and he loves to surf, but he keeps getting into big emotions at school that, run him into trouble and 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 so he learns what i learned i wish i had learned at age seven or eight but didn't until i was 20 that um our emotions move like waves and you know you can ride the good ones happy feelings come and when they do absolutely shred them enjoy them celebrate them but when those bad feelings come that's okay storm waves are natural and, um, but you don't have to ride those storm waves, right? You can be the, what did I say before? The ninja surfer <laughs> of your mental waves. You can, yeah, um, the ninja surfer of your mental waves. That's cool. <laughs> you can, you can <laughs> duck dive them. You can, um, and if you do happen to get caught in one, you cannot fight it and relax. And so that really, Mop just learns that metaphor. Uh, and all of a sudden, it clicks for him where he can go back to school and, and, uh, and it's, and again, and things don't go perfectly for him. He still gets angry and everything else. It's really like, but it's that lesson. So now I'm very sad. No problem. 
Mop is is sort of uh, translating that for kids and has absolutely stunning art by my stick figures didn't 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 um, <laughs> cut it <laughs> with the publishers so we were blessed to find uh, Matt, Matthew Allen who's a, a surf uh, artist in Southern California who did a, a really stunning job with it so. I'm just having so much fun with, with mop and the kids books. I hope I can keep doing, and we have a second one coming out basically like eight months later and I just love it. So where, where do people check it out? Jamal? Cause there's a lot of, lot of different books. Uh, and you've actually been doing quite a bit of writing since we last saw you in 2017. I think we caught up. Um, where's the hub for all your stuff, your books, some more about you, your work, uh, the doco, where's the, where's the best place to send people? J-A-I-M-A-L-Y-O-G-I-S dot net. Jamalyogis dot net has um, all my books and um, and some other good stuff. Um, you can watch the doc on YouTube right now during quarantine. The, the producers just put it up there for free. So um, that's easy to find there. And um, But yeah, Mop is available anywhere books are sold as are all my books, I think, down where you guys are too, that you can you can order them online or get them at your local bookstore. So, if your local bookstore doesn't have them, tell them to get them. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, this has been great. We'll uh, we'll send you a uh, a t shirt when we've got them made. Ninja Surfer, Ninja Surfer of your mental waves. I think it's gold. Um, thank you, mate. It's so good to catch up with you. Congratulations on the book. All the, in fact, congratulations on all the books and the doco. It's beautiful. I'll put all the links in the show notes. And, um, mate, we'll keep in touch. It's great. Thank you so much. Great to, to be chatting again. The Mojo Radio Show. What did you get out of it? I got a massive headache. Okay, let's just calm down. What's the so what? So All right. So what, Bert Whistle? My favourite part of that interview when he shared that story of the samurai and the Zen master and the difference between heaven and hell, I thought that was gold, is how simple and how profound that story was that it all has to do with our mind. Now, I think the other thing that's, if we look at Jamal, and we didn't go into it this show because we covered it off in the last show, but he's very big on meditation. And I, didn't, I intentionally didn't go down that off-ramp but for those that are interested in meditation, do you remember Giovanni Dietzman? Indeed. It was what, about a year I think ago. he was the last episode of one of our seasons. He was episode 203, which might have been oh, two years the ago. end of season five, wow. I think. Wow, okay, yep. Anybody interested in meditation should listen to that show. It was a cracker. And Giovanni talks about, demystifies it, and talks about all all the different ways that we can go about finding mindfulness and meditation, which is what Jamal is very, very big on, but you can hear that in his previous episode. But I thought I thought we would close with something that sits between kind of what meditation brings you and the story of the samurai and the Zen master, the difference between heaven and hell, that when you can find that place, I think... That brings you freedom. But when you hear the word freedom, what I've been pondering after talking to Jamal is that we think freedom is freedom to do what you want, when you want. 
But I think the biggest thing that Jamal brings to the show and Giovanni, the story that he told, is when you can free your mind of the burden of the past or other people's opinions, and you can free your mind of the heaven and hell that's taking control of all your thoughts and your mind, I think that in itself is true freedom. The, 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 the Mojo. Mojo Radio Show. Well, we should probably think about closing out the show. Why don't we throw the word freedom at you, Lola, and see what you can come up with? How's this one? You know, the first time I heard that song was my first ever radio station I worked at. And I heard that song and I nearly fell off the chair. That is such a good song. But unfortunately, I don't think it's us. And it's probably a little it's a bit, obvious. Well, it's a bit cliched. It's yeah. a bit obvious. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lola, Lola, what else you got? Ooh, now there's a classic. There's a contender. Leonard Skinner, free bird. I don't know if our audience is old enough to remember <laughs> the era of Freebird. Is it so sad that we are? Maybe a little. <laughs> yeah, very. Let's have another crack. Lola, what do you got? That'd be in your wheelhouse. That's 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 right up my alley. Absolutely. But apparently not yours. You're not much no, of a Neil I'm just Young not a Neil Young fan. I just don't see the attraction. I mean, that's a cracking song, don't get me wrong. And if you were in the car with the windows down on a summer's day, you'd, you'd crank it. But it's just, I just wouldn't buy a Neil Young album. But there are bajillions of people who do, so it's probably a good play-out song. It sounds like it's, that's, that particular song sounds very us, so. All right, let's do it. We're out.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.